You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. I'll be back. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. I'm back. Yeah, Jay's back after a two-week hiatus. You were sick the first week, and then you were in Colorado the second week. Well, the second week was just a technical problem. Yeah. I was sitting there listening to you guys record the first 10 minutes of the show, and I'm like, damn, I was so pissed. (laughs) Longer than Um, 10 minutes. I mean, there was a nice running commentary in the the chat window (laughs) while we were recording. That's true. Yeah, I was very, I was getting, I was swearing, wasn't I, if I remember? Yeah, it was just a lot of expletives and emoticons. Yeah. So, Kara, I understand you've been live tweeting. You're, you are watching of the of the uh, six Star Wars movies. Cool. I have. I think it made the time go by a little bit better. But you started with four, five, six. Yeah, I started with four, five, six. Those are the good ones. Yeah, no, those are the good ones. The classics. They are the classics. And I have seen them before, but I was much younger when I saw them. I think that when you look at them in the context of when they were made, they just blow you away. But when you erase that from your mind, which you can't help but try to lose yourself in the movie as you're watching them, there are certain things that just really don't hold up. Yeah, I mean, the the special effects are dated in places. I don't even Uh, mind the special effects so much. I think it's, well, I guess this would be considered special effects. The the puppeteering, it's not even that it's bad puppeteering. It's that, like, I don't like the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really like not a fan Yoda. of Salacious B. Crumb. I want to kill oh. him. I want to yeah, punch that, him in his oh, face. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I never really liked it. Like, he got really loose in that third movie. He's just very, and, like, dark crystal. I, I mentioned yeah, yeah. Uh, the Navigator. Mm-hmm. I, exactly. He's too... Di- it's like pre-Disney Disney. But I heard it was Jim Henson Studios that actually made those. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, sure. so mm-hmm. that sort of Absolutely. makes sense. Yep. Yeah, the guy that did Miss Piggy's voice did Yoda's voice. That's Frank, Frank Oz. But I like actor, Yoda. Director. He's Yoda was really yeah, well Yoda done. Yeah, Yoda worked. I Yoda worked. Surprisingly, Yoda did work. And, and you know, in, in movie five, which is The Empire Strikes Back, when Luke starts his training and do, does everything with Yoda, I mean, Yoda actually is very philosophical. But I agree totally with you, Kara. Like, I'm, you know, and Evan, I think, believe it was you, Evan, that said that um, that movie six, you could see the, the early proto crappy lucas coming out in that in that movie six that he took to full effect in movies one two and three i remember sort of watching the um the three original movies and the very end of return of the jedi was so bad it's so bad now what part did you not like the pan flute shit like the horrible oh, yeah. celebration song what was that yeah, I, I was like yeah, i was in know. a yoga class <laughs> i i can i can I can definitely <laughs> agree with you that they, oh I told you that it was George Lucas starting to get, you know, starting to to flex his mighty control over every little detail. Yeah, those should have been Wookies. No, I don't even mind that they were Ewoks. I liked the original version. The Yub Nub song was really cute. He totally replaced. I don't know if you've seen it recently. He totally well, replaced Yub. We are going to do a mm-hmm. full full yeah, review in of the, all yeah, of the Star Wars. I'm movies. sorry, I'm so getting very excited. We're recording that <laughs> on Saturday. But just a little preview, I hated the Ewoks. I hated them. That was the worst part about Return of the Jedi. I like What I hated about them (laughs) Mm -hmm. is not that they were short, cute, fluffy creatures, was because that they were so cliche, primitive tribe. It was everything about them was the most simplistic, childish cliche you can imagine. 
It, it was horrible. Not, Not a lot of thought zero. went into it. Was, <laughs> it was like, you know, like ever watch uh, ever watch a cowboy movie well, from the fifties? Oh yeah. god, yeah. And the way they portray American Indians, you know, Native Americans, that's what I felt it was like. Well, yeah, and apparently, I mean, again, I haven't gotten to the prequels yet, but apparently there's just a lot of racist crap that we're going to have to dig through. Well, we'll, we'll uh, dive into to oh all boy. of that. <laughs> <laughs> deep dive. All right, well, Kara, we're going to start with what's the word? And we have a follow-up. This is, I think, our yeah. first follow-up word. We got an email from a listener named Gary, who after last week when we talked about homeostasis said, I'll just... um quote a little small part of it uh, a thermostat does not regulate a house to a specific temperature that's homeostasis but actually regulates to a temperature range based on hysteresis most furnaces have one level of thermal output they're either on or off the thermostat turns the furnace on at a temperature that's at the low point of the hysteresis band this the furnace runs until the temperature reaches the high point of the hysteresis band and the cycle is repeated when the temperature reaches the low point again so gary's making the distinction here between homeostasis and maybe a more specific um, term, which is hysteresis. So I want to jump into that term, hysteresis. It is a physics term. I think the most precise definition that I could find online was the lag in a variable property of a system with respect to the effect producing it as this effect varies, especially the phenomenon in which the magnetic flux density of a ferromagnetic material lags behind the changing external magnetic field strength. And the reason that you see magnets used a lot in a discussion of hysteresis online is because they were first described, the term hysteresis was first described to delineate what actually happens in magnetic materials. But of course, that description has opened up quite a bit. You see it in engineering. Oftentimes, hysteresis is intentionally added to electronic circuits or to computer algorithms, either in electronics to prevent unwanted rapid switching of a circuit or in a computer algorithm to kind of allow an interface to be more intuitive because, of course, our brain's processing speed can be a little bit slower than the computer's processing speed. So an intentional lag there will help you not have your hand be confused as to where it is on an interface. You know, if you're moving a mouse around, there will be a lag built in for you so that it feels more intuitive. You can also find examples of hysteresis in biology, material science, economics, a ton of other fields. Oh, and the etymology, of course, of hysteresis. That's the most important part. It's from the Greek term hysteresis, which is a coming short or a deficiency, which came from an earlier hysteros, meaning later or second or after. So that kind of sort of makes sense. Sir James Alfred Ewing in the 1880s actually coined the term hysteresis to describe the behavior of mag magnetic materials. But you'll see a lot of other examples. A common one is a rubber band that as you put weights on a rubber band and then you remove those weights and it snaps back, you see this kind of delayed uh, physical response that is contingent on all of the previous historical stressors that you put on that material. So hysteresis seems to be this uh, amalgamation of the way that a material reacts with regards to its history of external cues and also that there's this built-in lag. Now, my question to you guys is, do you think that that means that a thermostat, because it is a great example of hysteresis, is not a good example of homeostasis? I was very intrigued by that distinction as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, after doing as much reading on it as I had time to do in the last week, uh, what, what I, I think the best way to make sense of it is that hysteresis is the behavior of the thermostat itself, mm -hmm. but that results in 
homeostasis. Homeostasis is a description of the environment. The environment itself is in homeostasis. In, with respect to temperature in, the, in that example, the temperature of the house, it, it regulates itself within a certain range. And I think that Gary was assuming that uh, homeostasis means that the value has to be fixed at one specific value and not have a range of values. And that is not true. Homeostatic systems can exist within a range. Yeah, but that range is typically small. Yeah, it's a small range, but there is no you know, demarcation line, right? There's no line mm-hmm. that you draw, right? It's like your body temperature will vary by a couple degrees. Yeah. And, and the reason that it can go higher or lower is happening. It's, it's a kind of cascading effect, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain height or at a certain low point, you will see all sorts of things, you know, proteins start to unfold. You'll see all sorts of things change in the body that in full can, um, yeah. can bring you to be very sick. So the hysteresis is almost like that's like a mechanism and the homeostasis is the result. I I came across two other terms that were kind of related that I wanted to hit upon. One is steady state and the other is dynamic equilibrium or equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those two terms are confused with each other. Equilibrium is when you – like for the the classic example is let's say you have a, a hot object in a large room. Uh, like a cup of coffee. And then when it, when the coffee cools down so that it's the exact same temperature as the room that surrounds it, it's at thermal equilibrium. There's no longer any net heat exchange between the two things. A steady state, uh, is different than that. If you had the, the cup of coffee on a, a hot plate on a heating element, and then that, that, uh, hot plate would heat the coffee up by putting energy into it. But the more heat the plate puts into the coffee, the more heat goes from the coffee to the air. At some point, at some temperature, you're going to reach steady state where the heat going into the cup is equal to the heat going from the cup into the surrounding air, right? That's a steady state. The difference is in a steady state, heat is being exchanged. In equilibrium, there is no net exchange. Yeah, there's no net energy transfer at all in equilibrium. Yeah, so steady state, exists in a lot of examples as well, like in biology, for example. So like your body temperature reaches a a quote-unquote steady state. You produce heat, you radiate heat. At some point, those two things are equal and you're in a steady state. That produces the homeostasis of body temperature. The, the, you know what I mean? So like steady state has the same kind of relationship to homeostasis as hysteresis does. They're a component of the system that creates the overall environmental homeostasis. So where do you think set point would fit into all of this? I guess I think that depends on context, but that's just the point at which you reach a steady state, right? Or There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. It would still require – you would still get to a point where there, it's constantly requiring energy mm-hmm. to put into the system to maintain that, that set point. If you have to put energy in, then that's you're at a steady state. If it's mm-hmm. just passive, like if there's just no net exchange of energy, then that's equilibrium. And hysteresis is, you know, when the the change has it depends upon the history. Like, is it coming up or going down? You know, so like if you're putting the weight on or taking the weight off, but getting to the same point, the system behaves differently mm-hmm. depending on what state you're coming from. That's why you have a hysteresis loop, right? You you, you saw that when you were reading yeah, about it, yeah. Where the, it follows one path on the way up and a different path on the way down, and you get like a, a very characteristic loop. That's because it's the path that it's taking is dependent upon its recent history. That's the definition, I think, of hysteresis. And, and what I love about things like this is that it always reminds me of how deep any 
concept is. Like if yeah. you do, if you do, you know, go down any rabbit hole, it goes down really deep. And and we're our this treatment that we just did was is very superficial. You oh, know, completely. This, I yeah, still yeah. don't fully, I mean, after reading it for so long, I still don't fully understand it. And so it's interesting because obviously we were coming from homeostasis, coming at homeostasis from a biological place and then using a, what we thought was a good real world example. But of course, we, in his view, were probably oversimplifying a thermostat. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, th- the thing you have to realize is that we simplify everything we talk about. We, you know, whether we oversimplify it or not is a, is a kind of a judgment call. We, we're always, when you're explaining science to a general audience, mm-hmm. you can't d- dive all the way down to the cutting edge, most technical knowledge. I, you know, I often have to remind medical students of this in residence. It's like, you just need to be aware roughly how deep the well of knowledge goes. Oh, I totally agree. It's sobering. You think you have a decent handle on some technical topic. And then I find an article that is clearly written by a physicist, somebody who knows this shit so deep. And I'm just, I just read a paragraph. I'm like, what the hell? I thought I knew (laughs) this. I really thought I had a handle on this. And clearly it's, it's, it's superficial compared to these guys. And it is, and I think everybody should do that. Who, who gets a little cocky sometimes. You just need to do that to, to realize that, that you're just really just, you know, scratching the surface. We encounter pseudoscientists all the time. One of the consistent errors that pseudoscientists make is that they don't appreciate the difference between their lay understanding of what's going on and the, you know, a real in-depth technical understanding of what's going on. You know, they're, they're confusing that superficial layer. And then, you know, it, it's, it is very much like children trying to argue with adults <laughs> uh, in terms of the difference of, of knowledge. Uh, and then they get all pissy when we don't take them seriously. <laughs> Imagine being one of those yep. few people. That are are on the cutting edge of their of their discipline, and really they could they could genuinely say to themselves, "Yup, nobody knows this any deeper than I do right now," and that must be in, uh, incredibly rewarding, I would think. All right, well, let's move on with some news items. This item I think was the most interesting one of the week. A study came out look comparing male and female brains. Uh, the researchers had a very specific question. They wanted to know if there are any categorical differences between male and female brains. Uh, they looked at four data sets of MRI scans and fMRI scans, so both looking at anatomy as well as connections, like networks in the brain, where you could make comparisons between men and women. And they found some very interesting results. Their results, the the bottom line reporting of their results, a lot of the headlines said something along the lines of uh, that the research showed there was, quote unquote, no difference between male and female brains. That's not quite right. That's way too general. Yeah, that's not, it's not quite right. It's actually, you know, this is, again, we get to the difference, like a similar difference between homeostasis and hysteresis, right? We're getting to a technical level. But I do think it's important because categorization is such is a basic skill in thinking about reality, the universe, and science. It's good to think about how we categorize things. It's like in medicine, I try to teach my students how do we define diseases, right? How do we design clinical? How do we define clinical entities? If you don't understand that, then you can't really think about them. Let's back up a little bit and 
first talk a, li- a little bit about how we define different categories. Like, for example, we could talk about how do we define the category of a planet, right? This was a controversial topic that came up a few years ago with Pluto. Astronomers had to decide how they were going to define planet as a category. Also, historically, I think another great example is biologists categorizing 10 million species. Like, how are we going to define life on Earth? How are we going to categorize stuff? This is where things get tricky because the universe is fuzzy, right? Categories in reality are complicated. They're blurry at the edges. There's exceptions, etc. They're also dependent on technology. Yeah, it's a bit it's dependent on on lots of things, on our ability to describe and examine things, and also on our understanding of the underlying principles. So ideally, like the best categorization system would have unambiguous categories that have that follow some kind of objective operational definition and reflect our understanding of the underlying science. Right? Like if you know how planets form, you can use that knowledge to decide how to categorize solar system objects. That's not quite how they did it. They they used easily definable milestones like if a pl- if a body is big enough to pull itself into a sphere, that's one criterion. Or if it is able if it's big enough to clear out its local space, like it does it gravitationally dominate its orbit. Those are those were like easily def- definable operational definitions, but they don't necessarily reflect a real distinction between how these objects come about. In this case, we have essentially a spectrum, a continuum, and you're just drawing an, a line somewhere along that continuum based on some physical property that we can define. Which is which is often arbitrary. Which is often arbitrary. What do you, what physical properties are you going to just dis- uh, decide to use as your as your milestones. Um, okay, so let's turn to male and female brains. the The authors are making a distinction between a categorical difference and a statistical difference, and they used as an example uh, of a categorical difference genitalia. In terms of of male and female genitalia, we basically have a sexually dimorphic or bimodal system. You have male genitalia and female genitalia. There's no third thing. There's there's nothing else. Uh, and most people, most people can be unambiguously placed in one category or the other. And there's essentially no overlap in between. However, there are exceptions. You know, there are biological exceptions. There's a number of conditions that can result in what we call ambiguous genitalia. Um, either genetic, hormonal, developmental, etc. But you know, it's, I think it's reasonable to consider those anomalies, and they are the exception, not the rule. The rule still is for the vast majority of people. There are two states, and you can unambiguously place people in one of those two states. So there are categorical differences. So the researchers wanted to know, are there categorical differences between male and female brains? Another way to look at a different, the difference between a categorical versus a statistical difference, if you know what category an individual belongs to, does that tell you anything absolutely about their traits? Ah. So knowing that somebody is male will enable you to predict with a very high reliability what genitalia they have. Gosh, Obviously, there are ex- again, again with exceptions, but they, it's a pretty good predictor of their genitalia. You were talking about when you were first defining male and female genitalia, 
you were saying specifically that you could put a male or female label on the genitalia, not on the person's uh, psychological representation. Oh, itself. yeah, of course. Not. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm just defining them biologically. Just yeah, biologically. just biologically, their genitalia. Yeah, My not, question is, can you flip that? Not their gender identity, not their, yeah. you know, their sexual orientation, not anything else, just their biologically. My question is, can you flip that? So is a categorical definition one that if you were to hand me a brain, just a brain, and I looked at it, I could categorically say this is in the skull of a male human or a female human based on its features. Mm. So so let's get to the data of the study. Yeah. So what they found, it's very interesting. They looked at uh, about 40 different uh, anatomical or functional aspects of the brain. And what they found was that generally speaking, there are statistical differences between males and females uh, when you look at those specific, like the size of, a, of one anatomical re- region or the robustness of a network or a connection between two regions, that you could say, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a statistical difference. However, there's a lot of overlap, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not categorically different. They're just statistically different. Sometimes they could even be slight, but because you're dealing with such large numbers of individuals in these, you know, these four data sets, dot data sets, you can get statistical significance even for very small differences. And and Steve, couldn't some of these differences be related not to pure biology or whether you're male or female, but to things like, say, environment and culture, which we know the brain interacts with the environment and culture and is shaped by it in many ways. Yeah, so that is a separate question that was not even addressed by this study. Oh, wow. Okay. This study is not looking at what is what is causing any differences that they're seeing, only whether or not there are differences, uh, which is, uh, you know, an easier question to address. It's a really hard to tease apart culture versus biological, environmental, et cetera. But anyway, but, but then they looked at, they, they did another analysis where they looked at individuals and they said, if in an individual, what percentage have, you know, mostly, mostly, like if you look at an individual male subject, how many of their 40 brain regions will be typically male? And how many will be typically female or somewhere in the middle? So one way to ca- to capture that data is say, well, what percentage of people have a hundred percent of their brain regions are typical for their for their sex? Uh, and among the four data sets, that number ranged from zero to eight percent. So very few people, like very few men, have all male brain regions in in wow. terms of their size and connections. How many have a mixture of both was like 28 to 58%. So overall, what they found was that while there are statistical difference, differences in specific aspects of the brain, there's a lot of overlap. And that when you look at individuals, people are mosaics. And most people are a mosaic of male and female traits. Does that make sense? Yeah, Steve does is that does that continue with the line of uh, research that ha- to date, or is that different? Is this a new discovery? I don't know that this is new. I mean, this is just looking back at previous dead data sets. But it, a lot of research will look at one aspect. You know, we'll look at oh, let's look at Broca's area and see you know if it's any difference between men, men and women, and say oh yeah, look, there's a statistical difference. But this was the first to like put it all together that I'm aware of, to put it all together and then to look at individuals and say, what does what do individuals look like? So an, another way to, to look at this, so getting back to the previous question is, if, if I know somebody is male, can I predict anything about their brain regions? And the answer is no. No. You can't. <laughs> it, it doesn't predict anything about because they could have half of their brain regions could be typically female. Steve, and, wow. we can't detect 
the the effect that the hormones have on well yeah that that's yet a separate question but of course hormones affect the brain yeah like testosterone and estrogen that is that is true but that's you're getting now into you know the causes of of differences that are there what the authors concluded was is that there isn't a typical male or a typical female brain like there is typically male or typically female genitalia. Their, their things are not analogous. That individuals are mosaics and whether they're male or female doesn't really predict much about their individual brain. But there are statistical differences between the sexes, but they don't predict individual characteristics. So I often see this story, you know, I see the headline of our male and female brains different, it keeps popping up. And I remember covering it previously, and often seeing that there are categorical distinctions. Do you think that the difference with this study is that instead of looking at individual brain regions uh, in a vacuum, they decided to aggregate all of them and and determine whether or not an individual fits into that aggregate pattern? Yeah, exactly. That that That's what they're doing. And it was trying to address the specific question, is there a typical male and a typical female brain? And the answer is clearly no. I wonder how male my brain is. The bottom line of all this is that people are individuals. You know, knowing that somebody is a male or female doesn't tell you that much about them neurologically or mentally. Mm -hmm. Certainly not as much as you might think. What's interesting is that the more you sort of delve into this question, the more you the more you discover, in my experience, that stereotypes are just that. They're actually stereotypes. Like the idea that women aren't as much into geeky things. It's not true. You know, plenty of women who are nerds and into all the geeky stuff that we're into. Mm-hmm. I remember I took personality inventory, and it was designed in the 50s. And one <laughs> of the questions was, do you like flowers? I'm like, sure, I love flowers. <laughs> How do you like them flowers? And that... <laughs> That uh, the the <laughs> study interpreted that as a characteristic of being homosexual. Wow, really? It's like, it's like wow. wow, that's dated. Yeah, but that's yeah. it's just a stereotype. <laughs> and like the whole pink blue thing, no reality yeah, pink, to that. Yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's where I think all the cultural constructs come into play. You know, a lot of stuff like that. You know, some people sound like birds, Steve. Some people. <laughs> 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 that's a good segue, Jake. Well, Evan, Evan, tell us about. This new study looking at human and bird voices. Courtesy of the University of Southern Denmark, new research published in Nature Communications reveals that humans and birds use the exact same physical mechanism to make their vocal cords move and thus produce sound. The lead author of the paper is Associate Professor Dr. Cohen Elements from the University of Southern Denmark, and he explains that science has known for over 60 years that this mechanism which is called the myoelastic aerodynamic theory, or in short, the MEAD, M-E-A-D, mechanism. It drives speech and singing in humans. We have now shown that birds use the exact same mechanism to make vocalizations. MEAD might even turn out to be a widespread mechanism in all land-dwelling vertebrates. Hmm. So here's what the researchers did. They studied six different species of birds, from five avian groups. The smallest species was the zebra finch, weighing just 15 grams. The largest one was the ostrich, weighing about 200 kilograms. Pretty wide range. All of the studied birds were revealed to use the mead mechanism. Courtesy of Dr. Elements, he says that already since 1646, we know that birds do not make sounds with their larynx. And this was discovered when M. Duverney surprisingly noted that a beheaded chicken could still make sounds. 
Cool. <laughs> birds produce sounds using an organ unique to birds called the syrinx that's located deep in the body and therefore very difficult to study. But according to Dr. Elmans, according to Dr. Elmans, <laughs> they managed to film sound production in birds from zebra finches to ostriches. And they did so in such detail using high-speed cameras that they were able to show for the first time that birds also produce sound according to the Mead theory. Cool. I, I don't, actually, I don't find it that surprising because it's the same underlying physics, right? I mean, birds and, and people are dealing with the same physics, so this is just convergent evolution. I mean, right. it could be homologous evolution. I don't know. I mean, did, did the common ancestor of birds and humans have a vocal cord? But if even if they're completely separate, it's not surprising. It's like, you know, sharks and dolphins having the same body shape because they're both dealing with the same hydrodynamics. You know, the the mechanism, what happens is the each vocal cord flutters in, as the air moves past it. You're expelling air from the lungs like a flag fluttering in the wind. And when that happens, they are opening and closing, right? They close, stopping the airflow, and then open, opening the airflow. Uh, and every time they do that, it creates a, a sound wave, right? That And that the frequency at which they oscillate is the frequency of sound that's produced. So that is mead? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it's just the underlying physics is the same. Of course it is. You know? I guess yeah. it didn't have to be. They might have hit upon some other way of producing pulses of sound. And there, there may be, I'm sure there are other creatures that produce sounds in, in other ways. Right. But you made the comment at the beginning, Evan, kind of like a throwaway comment, that perhaps this extends to every land-dwelling mammal. Where did that come from? Yeah. And again, that was uh, courtesy of the Dr. Elmans who led the study. So that was, he just his, was, like, that was probably. his observation. Yeah, I mean, that's, he he. It was it was he did not delve into that. Yeah, that that's part not in the study, stayed, right? Yeah, that's right. It's not in the study. <laughs> <It's> weird. <laughs> that that part is speculation, but speculation. That's that's what they. But interesting. Yeah, that, that's what I guess the next step is to figure out is this universal? Well, it seems like their their vocalization ability is probably somewhat even more attuned to human or ape like than even other even than other apes because they can mimic our voices. Like many birds can mimic our voices. But I think that's that's probably a difference more in the brain. You know, that's you think? A, that's they have the yeah, they they have a language part of the brain that helps them imitate sounds precisely. Mimicry. Yeah, the mimicry, so, but, which is an adapt like, adaptation, you know, to throw yeah, off like predators. Yeah, like a muscular a muscular like a like a muscular control or something, a way to actually yeah, they probably have utilize a, more neurons dedicated to controlling, you know, their vo- their well, their voice. Yeah, and, and we know that because, especially in songbirds, and they make new neurons throughout their life, which we don't do in certain brain regions. We do in only a few brain regions, but songbirds actually have uh, adult neurogenesis, like seasonally. Oh, wow. Oh, seasonally. Actually, Kara, it's, in the last five to ten years, it's really been mm-hmm. discovered that humans do make new neurons throughout their lifetime. But I thought it was only like in the hippocampus no, and the uh, no. nasal epithelium. It really isn't. That's That's... Really? That, that's outdated, yeah. Uh, is it everywhere or only in specific regions? No, pretty though? much everywhere. Just, Shut up. There are neural, <laughs> neural stem cells. <laughs> yeah, you use your voice. Neural stem cells are active. Through, they decrease as we age, but they're still active even into older adults. I see. I think the difference is that it's not so, – when we think of traditional adult neurogenesis, we think of being able to replace well, yeah, there are, a functional unit. Yeah, there are – No way. There are stem cell neurons – that are waiting oh, cool. there to be recruited to make new connections to even replace entire neurons and connections. Absolutely. But Which they must is be awesome. kind of shitty at it, right? Well, it's because just that we've... they're just not that robust. The older we yeah. get, the less robust they are, but they're there. 
be, because the repair mechanism exists, Steve, is there a way that we can coax more out of it? Yeah, stimulate so exactly. It, it That's the awesome accelerate. thing about it. The fact that there are neural stem cells that can, they know how to replace, you know, damaged neurons and, and make functional connections that really makes it a lot more feasible that we can just inject neural stem cells into the brain and they'll make meaningful connections because the awesome. obviously the mechanisms are already there for them to do it. We're just giving them more raw material. So yeah, that's been very encouraging research over the last 10 years and dovetail ni- dovetails nicely with the whole stem cell thing. Of course, the technology is technically very difficult and we're not there yet, but. And also then you have to worry about like yeah, explosive cancer. Yeah, causing oh. brain cancer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the, that's one of the major limitations. Oops. How, how about using that to augment our intelligence? Yeah, that's mm. seems, that, that's different. Now you're trying to do something that's not already inherent in the brain. And we also, yeah, we also of still course. don't know how to fully define intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're better off implanting computers. <laughs> well, that too. More, that's more too. reliable. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, the Great Courses. And this week, we're pimping my own course, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills. You know, I got an email just this week by coincidence from one of our listeners saying, oh, it would be so great if you guys had a course that went over the basics of critical thinking and logic and all that. (laughs) So all I had to do was send him a link to my Your Deceptive Mind course because that's basically what it is, uh, primer on all things skeptical. You can learn all of the things in Steve's video. You can learn all of the things in many videos. There are a ton of great courses. There's over 500, and they cover a bunch of different subjects. And you can watch them as a DVD. You can digitally stream them. You can even download them and watch them with the Great Courses app. Special deal for SGU listeners. If you order from eight of the Great Courses best-selling series, including Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, you can take up to 80% off the original price for SGU listeners. That is an 80% savings, and it's only available, what, for a limited time? So go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Okay, let's move on. Jay, give us an update on driverless, so-called driverless cars, even though they sometimes still need a driver. Steve. Yeah. We're on the threshold, okay, of a life-changing technology. It always seems that way, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> like, I was thinking, you know, okay, what, what would most of us that are listening to or recording this podcast relate to? So think of when the personal computer came out. Think of when the internet came. Think of when the smartphone came, right? Huge game changers technological game changers in our lifetime. These come to pass every so often. You know, there's been a lot of technology, but this next thing, this next thing is going to be huge. The the driverless cars or autonomous cars, if you want, (laughs) um, they're soon going to be, um, they're going to become probably the most common form of transportation. And it's going to change the way we get from point A to point B. Now, some people are saying by 2040, they'll be everywhere, right? So that meaning like every single tractor trailer truck, um, even ambulances, like every vehicle, you know, most likely the vehicle that you'll have will be your car or a shared driverless car, you know, that kind that you like only pay for when you use it. There's a few questions here because this is coming and we have to start talking about every aspect of the driverless car world that we're going to develop. Um, how good are they? And more importantly, how do we deal with the very odd question of driverless car ethics? 
That's kind of weird when you think about it, right? The ethics of driverless cars. But but check this out. So let me just give you a little background. Today, we have many companies working on the technology. Google seems to be the front runner, of course, uh, since they've been at it for a long time and they have uh, achieved an amazing technology. We saw one of their driverless cars when we visited, guys. Remember, we were at Google. We saw one of them driving down the street. It was yeah. incredibly yeah. exciting. Um, do you guys know what they call the software that runs the cars? Phil, Margaret, mm. Margaret, <laughs> no, uh, Johnny, no. Johnny Cab, close. Johnny Cab. The Google chauffeur, the Google chauffeur. Yeah. Oh, oh come on, sense. we could have come up with a better yeah. name than that. <laughs> and I remember, um, I don't remember how long ago, maybe around that time. I loved learning that they no longer measure the car's success by how many times a human has to take over per mile. They, they, they don't measure it by the mile now or under the mile. They measure it by miles. And those cars can now go an incredibly long distance without a human intervention incident having to happen. Um, and it just they just keep increasing the amount of time the car can drive on its own. And in June 2015, the, the driver of this car team at Google announced that their vehicle has now driven or their vehicles have collectively driven over a million miles. It's 1,600 – I'm sorry, 1,600,000 kilometers. And that's the accumulated driving experience of the average 75-year-old, which I – Really? Wow. So in essence, it's like your driving experience that is of your entire lifetime, except that Google's car keeps getting better as it gets older, right? And now they're saying that as early as what year, guys? When will Google publicly uh, let you buy one of their cars? Mm, Uh, 2020. 2018? 2021. 2020. As early as 2017, as late as 2020. Yep. Could be be a year and a half from now. No way. Anyway, legislation (laughs) has been passed in four states and Washington, D.C., allowing driverless cars. Already. Already. Four states. Okay. So what about the ethics, guys, of these these cars, these crazy cars with no real – with no human behind the freaking wheel? Should we be scared, happy, worried? What's the deal? So let let me throw a situation at you, okay? Mm -hmm. Kara is drunk and she's driving down the highway. (laughs) And And she's texting. And then she gets into a fight with her boyfriend and gets no, really upset. And then her mom calls and she picks up the phone. Who would you rather have drive the car? Kara under that circumstance or a driverless car? Wow. Why does it have to be me? Evan is driving down the highway. <laughs> Thank you. Why can't no, Evan be an emotional wreck when, when he breaks up with his boyfriend? I'm completely yeah. kidding, Kara. That's, that's not my scenario. Here's my scenario. He's a jerk. Here's the situation. Yeah. Okay? Because Everybody knows that, that Kara doesn't drink a lot. Imagine <laughs> Kara doesn't a, drink at all. That's right. Neither does Steve. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, Evan Bernstein, a situation where a driverless car has to decide what to do, and no matter what it's going to do, it's going to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, I hate this, this the, question. The good this ethical quandary. Ethic. Let's talk mm-hmm. about it. So does it swerve and miss the child or be forced to hit a car that has four adults in it? How, Why it's, can't it turn itself off and stop? No, no, sorry, but this is, a, this is an ethical question, so it can't. Oh, okay, it has to keep going. Okay. Well, easy. I mean, you, you, you minimize loss of life, life as much as you can. Yeah, you minimize collateral damage. It's, it's, he hits the car with one person, even if it's a baby. All right, now how about this? Does it sacrifice its own passenger or the other people in the other car then? At that point, it depends. How's it programmed? How does it know that it's going to sacrifice the passenger? That's how, our choice. It, it can't know that. So you guys are, are you guys saying though that we should we should collectively decide that the car is going to do whatever it can that will have the least human uh, death? Correct. Right. I like that. Yeah. In this I, situation, I agree with that. except so, if I'm driving. 
Well, yeah, exactly. Except if I'm driving, but <laughs> I want, don't it want to protect me. me. Except my car, which will always protect me. So, yeah. you know, who gets to, <laughs> to really decide the algorithms that are going to run these cars? And 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 check this out: mm-hmm. who's to blame when somebody actually does get killed? That's that's yeah, a big, that's a big yeah, one. That's a big one. Google. And, so Google, yeah, right now it's not going to happen. That's what we do now. I mean, honestly, if there's a, a defect in a car and then somebody gets in an accident and they can actually link it to that defect in the car, they're going to blame the car manufacturer. The manufacturer. But, it, but the driverless car right software and, and systems, I don't believe that they can be blamed for every accident. I think what is actually going to happen is we will get to a place where nobody will be at fault. It'll be a no fault. It'll always be a no fault situation. When In a land full of lawyers? Huh? I doubt that. Boy, that I that's sincerely tough. doubt no, that. And I'll I tell think you that you why. will always be able to argue that human intervention would have been able to make a, a more calculated decision. No, that's I totally disagree. I to- huh. I, and this is why I love this news item so well. I love this topic so much because it's, it's fascinating when you think about it. Okay, let me make my argument real quick to what you just said. Uh, okay. Mm. okay. All right, first of all, driverless cars come out and we find out that when it's just driverless cars involved – that the accident rate goes from, say, you know, 20% of all drivers get into one or more accidents every 10 years, as an example, to almost zero, right? We're having, you know, one, one in a million people get into a fatality every wow. decade or something inc- incredibly Jeez. small like that, right? So the, okay, so we're making okay. this as our first assumption. No, I'm just – but I'm throwing it at you that we can, we can track the statistics and we can yeah. see that, that driverless cars could get to near-perfect driving records. Clearly, though, it might not be as dramatic as that, but clearly yeah, we're making an it's assumption. going it, to go from, let's say, 30,000 a year in the United States a year to something that is a, a tiny fraction of that. A that's handful. clear. That, that's clear. There's really no question about that. This is going to change so much potentially. Like maybe people won't even own cars anymore. You'll just Uber your driverless car. Yeah, you there'd know. be no reason to own one. You would just take the closest – they're just waiting there. House. Community yeah. cars? Sure. But yeah. isn't, isn't it fascinating po- though, guys, to, to think? Yeah. Great. Like, I mean, it sounds awesome. my community car. Here's, a, <laughs> you might, here's another one. Who's cleaning that right up? Now, Jay, right now, Google is working on you know their software to improve the way driverless cars or autonomous cars drive on roads with human drivers. Yeah. Right? They have to adapt to the way humans drive. Yeah. But at you have to be able to swerve and swear. Oh so well, yeah, point, was- <laughs> at some point they're, they're, they won't have to do that anymore. They'll they'll just be uh, have to adapt to driving on the road with each other with other autonomous mm-hmm. cars. And then right. how will traffic patterns and driving patterns change when humans are effectively mm. taken out of the loop? Faster and closer, I think they'll be able to coordinate. Well, who knows? Yeah. Well, maybe also, they'll be talking that's about so very in, hard to predict that. Yeah, because yeah, we're also hard. talking about increased um, population density. Like yeah. it, this is happening in the future when there are more people. Yeah. Hey, well, guys, wasn't there wasn't there a recent story where uh, there were people were having problems with driverless cars because they were going the speed limit? They were going too slow. <laughs> too slow. <laughs> too slow. Yeah, yeah. Cops, are, cops are pulling them over. Twenty five. It was a made joke. Made them drive way too cautiously, and then it was slowing down traffic. So that's what I'm saying. Now they have to adapt and drive and drive more aggressively to adapt to the human drivers around them. Typically, when a major technology hits. At first, the technology tries to emulate what it's replacing, and then eventually it gets optimized for what it is, right? Yeah. So at first, cars looked like horseless carriages. You know? <laughs> right, right, and then, right. Yes, they but, did. But then they got optimized to the new technology. 
And I think the same thing will happen. At first, these autonomous cars will be programmed to drive like we drive now. And then eventually, once we, they'll be optimized for what autonomous cars can do best. And it'll be, it's hard to predict what that exactly will mean, but it'll, I'm sure it'll be more efficient, you know, than driving like people. That's kind of the point. It's interesting. It's crazy. I'm really interested to see how this is going to play out over the next 20 years. And, really and we will. And and the day that I actually get into the first driverless car and I get to get in the back seat and I'm like, okay, I'm just – here I am. And the car goes and you get over the initial like, oh my god, isn't this weird? And you start getting used to the fact that you're going to be in the back seat or in a huge cabin with no steering wheel. Like it's going to be like a big circular seat in there or whatever. Yeah, I think we will amazingly fast, just like the smartphone. All of a sudden, it's like I don't have access to my email nonstop. I can't call anyone anytime I want. Yeah. Like, you know, think about going back to like not having your GPS on yeah, your Yeah, you won't want to go back. I mean, I, I like driving and the loss of being in control of driving around myself. I feel like I wouldn't want to do that. But right. I also think the convenience – of like, oh, huge. It's going to be so huge that you're yeah. not going to look back. It's like, oh my God, I could do whatever I want while I'm, I don't have to spend an hour doing nothing but driving. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that we're, we're going to, we're not going to look back once we really cross that line. I hope people will still listen to podcasts. Yeah, that's true. Oh, cars. they so Jeez. will. They so I will. I hope so. All right, Kara, this is a funny item. The next one about people who think that vacuous statements are really profound. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of people like that. And I mean, <laughs> no I think we all kind of knew that. But I'm just so excited about this study. So there was a new article published in the journal Judgment and Decision Making. And this cool. is literally the title of the study. On the reception and detection of pseudo-profound bullshit. Ha, awesome. <laughs> and so they use this term pseudo-profound bullshit throughout the study. I am going to go ahead and try my best to use the term nonsense or, you know, woo, just so that Steve doesn't have to bleep every other word that I say. Or just PPBS. Uh, PPBS, yeah, that's that rolls off the tongue. (laughs) And so uh, it's a really interesting study. The researchers, what they were interested in is how receptive people are to nonsensical, profound-sounding statements, not so much why, but they do scratch the surface of the yeah, why. Yeah, the why is interesting. Re- yeah, the why is interesting. But what th- what their first endeavor is to figure out how receptive are people to statements that sound profound but actually don't mean anything. And I think we can all probably guess who might have been um, an inspiration for this study. Who who can we think of that makes a lot of nonsensical, profound statements? Or seemingly Anyone? profound, yeah. Anyone? Well, of course, yeah. it's got to be uh, it's, uh, Deepak. Um, yeah, Deepak Chopra. Chopra. Deepak Chopra. And so the funny thing is, during these separate four experiments that the researchers out of Waterloo, Canada um, did, they actually used Deepak Chopra over and over and over. Yeah, of course. So uh, <laughs> the, the, they, in the first um, experiment, they wanted to use what the cleanest way that they could these uh, pseudo profound sounding statements. So they visited both the random Deepak generator, which is at wisdomofchopra.com. And they also visited the new age bullshit generator, which is at sebpierce.com slash bullshit. So you guys can visit these yourself. They're really amazing. At the uh, new age generator, you just hit the button reionize electrons and then you get a statement <laughs> like intuition is the growth of aspiration and of us. That Here's another. I'm doing this in is. real time, by the way. By evolving, we heal. Um, at wisdomofchopra.com I've got one here existence influences formless happiness 
Here's another one. Ugh. Good health relies on spiritual possibilities. Okay. So these statements literally mean nothing. Um, but they sound really profound. And part of the reason that they sound pro- so profound is that they're grammatically correct. So they, they're a string of these uh, gobbledygook words in a grammatically correct um, okay. statement. So you guys right. can have fun with that on your own. But one of the examples from the study is wholeness quiets infinite phenomena. Does it? Apparently. So uh, they, they gave these uh, different statements to a bunch of university students, pretty common in this kind of a study, psych- psychology, uh, in the psychology department, university students. And they were asked to rate the profundity of the statements on a scale of one to five in this first study. The results of the study is that the average score was 2.6. And also 25% of the study participants gave these random statements a score of three or higher, which means that... What's that mean? Across the board, people found them to be at least a little bit prof- uh, profound, and at least a quarter of the study participants found them to be a profundity of three or higher. Yeah, it seemed that there was like this- What's the scale? This minority, one to five. This 25% of people thought that everything was so profound. Yeah, yeah. exactly, which is hilarious. Yeah. And so okay. then they said, okay, we need to- compare real world examples of pseudo profound bullshit to randomly generated examples. So we want to actually pick out statements that have been said. And of course they went to the goal mine, which is Deepak Chopra's Twitter feed, yeah. <laughs> and they, which I love. And they pulled <laughs> phrases from Chopra's actual feed, like quote, nature is a self-regulating ecosystem of awareness. And they used some of Chopra's actual tweets and then some of these randomly generated statements. It turns out that that Chopra now goes to the website and makes up new stuff on there and uses it. Yeah, he's doing all the work. (laughs) Why not? Yeah, this is awesome. And then he just cashes in. (laughs) So the results of this were pretty similar to study one. There was a a change that they did where they wanted to screen to see if people were aware of who Deepak Chopra was. And nearly 45% of the study participants were aware. And they also found that there was a slight um, difference in people who knew who he was. They rated his statements as slightly more profound than uh, the gobbledygook statements. But once they removed that group, the pattern of responses was really similar. And it was already pretty similar. Yeah, so basically they proved scientifically that Deepak Chopra's statements are indistinguishable from randomly, yes. randomly generated bullshit. Yes, that's a very good summary of yeah. that. It is it, What Deepak Chopra is saying is indistinguishable from gobbledygook yeah. that's made up online. It's amazing. Um, and then they decided, okay, we want to make sure that this isn't just a, a bias in the in the study participants, that they don't just see everything as profound, right? Because so far... We've just seen we're seeing that they're rating a lot of stuff as profound. So they had people rate mundane statements like here's one. Most people enjoy some sort of music. And then also they included popular aphorisms that a lot of people consider to be somewhat profound, like a river cuts through a rock, not because of its power, but its persistence. In general, they found that people rated the aphorisms the highest, but... Again, in this situation, a quarter of the participants rated the pseudo-profound phrases, the ones that were randomly generated online, as the most profound of all. Yeah. Hmm. Which is crazy. So as for the why, um, I have a nice quote from the study authors here. They said, and this is based on a lot of the the 
data. You know, one thing that I left out here is that they looked at all sorts of different parameters, like how how much does this person believe in the supernatural? How much does this person um, uh, believe in conspiracy theories? So they tried to kind of screen people based on all of these different things so they could compare them all. And what they found when they looked at all of those factors was, quote, those more receptive to bullshit are less reflective, lower in cognitive ability, like verbal and fluid intelligence and numeracy, are more prone to ontological confusions. Um, and the <laughs> description here is beliefs and things for which there's no empirical evidence, right. like prayers have the ability to heal. And uh, conspiratorial ideation are more likely right. to hold religious and paranormal beliefs and are more likely to endorse complementary and alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. So I think this is something that we all could kind of guess. Yes. That it certainly is reinforcing all of our skeptical biases. Yes, yes. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's this, I found this fascinating, this study, because it does suggest that, you know, there are people who have different patterns of thinking. You know, they're, they're, again, they're less analytical. They're more impressed by things that sound profound, even when they don't really have any meaningful content. They're just thinking differently. Other influences that, that came to mind, I think it's, it's possible that these, the randomly generated BS phrases, are kind of a Rorschach test in that they, yeah. they're so vacuous you can impose your own meaning exactly. onto them. Yeah. Yeah. And Perfect. so that, that that seems really profound, but you're giving it, you know, the profundity, if you will. And I do that's interesting because that's similar to a lot of what happens with paranormal belief, is you're imposing mm -hmm. your own narrative onto Right, right. Like astrology predictions, yeah. right? Astrology yeah. predictions. It's like they're so vague, they apply to everyone. And Cold readings. Thinks, that's that's yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're if you're the target of a cold reading, you're doing all the work. You're finding all the patterns. You're filling in all the gaps, you know. So that maybe that's really what's at work. And I think it was the authors who speculated, or somebody speculated, that another factor might be if you don't understand something, it's like the emperor's new clothes. You'll you'll say you'll endorse it as profound because you don't want to look stupid. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Oh, okay. That's a good angle. Oh, well said, Steve. Yes. All right, Bob. Yes. I understand that someday in the magical future, Mars <laughs> is going to have a ring around it. It's no magic here at all. So, yeah, so not only will Mars certainly lose its largest moon, Phobos, in the distant future, but now it looks like that that moon will not ram into Mars, but create a lovely new ring around it. Uh, so this all started when um, un very unusual grooves um, were spotted on the surface of, of Phobos years ago. A lot of these grooves seem to be coming or emanating from uh, what's called Stickney Crater. It was thought that that the Titanic uh, collision that caused that crater caused the fractures. And, and that was very reasonable because that was one mother of an impact. It almost destroyed the moon. Take a look at Phobos. It's, it just dominates uh, the surface of Phobos. It, it makes it kind of look like the Death Star. You know, that little distinctive depression, or I guess it's a huge depression where the you know the planet mm -hmm. killing energy beams emanate from. Um, it kind of looks like that, but even more so, even more so. It's deeper, it's wider, it's really uh, an amazing structure. There, uh, more recently, there was another theory that perhaps the grooves were created by material that was somehow ejected uh, by Mars itself and impacted Phobos. Uh, but now it seems that the grooves are more akin to stretch marks on the surface due to the uh, the tidal forces 
exerted on Phobos by Mars. Uh, now, th these forces are simply the differences in the gravitational attraction across a body, and you may think of them as relatively, you know, safe and innocuous like our cycle of tides here on Earth, but tidal forces can achieve Death Star-scale destruction in, in many situations, like ripping a planet or a moon to pieces. It really can have devastating effects. And the reason why these forces are so strong on Phobos is that Phobos, I didn't know this, it's it's crazy close to Mars. It's only 6,000 6, kilometers or 3,700 miles away. That's 167th the distance from Earth to the moon. It's very. It's actually the smallest distance between a moon and a planet in our solar system, and that gap oh. and that gap closes by about six feet or two two meters every century. So it's just getting closer and closer, and uh, and so it seems pretty certain that Phobos will disintegrate in about thirty million years. And these grooves are really just the first visible signs that that it's going to be ripped apart. But the next big mystery was is you know whether Phobos was going to actually hit Mars before any of this uh, this ring formation could happen. So now the new modeling that, that that they've done suggests that that most, if not all, of Phobos will likely be turned into rings. And this is because Phobos uh, it just doesn't have a dense core. Uh, they used to, they used to think that it was a, a really dense rocky core, but it looks to be a very loose collection of rocks that are essentially surrounded by a skin of regolith, and so it's really kind of loosely held together, which is why it will much more easily break apart before it crashes in there. And what's cool is that when it happens, it's going to happen fast on the order of uh, days or weeks. And I love one of the re no. re one of the researchers, Benjamin Black. He said, "If you were standing on the surface of Mars, you could grab a lawn chair and watch Phobos shearing out and spreading into a big circle, and that uh, it would be an amazing sight. Somebody should actually simulate that just to see what that would be like. That's amazing, right? So when it does happen, uh, they're saying that the rings could last one to a hundred million years, and uh, which is kind of a big spread. But Two for that magnitude, yeah. right? But for that, <laughs> but for that time, Mars will join the panoply of objects that have or. Uh, have had rings in our solar system, like, of course, the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Uranus. Uh, plus, I did some research on what, what other ring systems are in our solar system. Jupiter has a moon, Himalaya, which currently looks like it may have a ring. And there's also an asteroid uh, called uh, Chiriclo, which uh, has two rings. So uh, Mars will uh, join that group. And, of, of course, the... Uh, uh, the moon and the asteroid will probably lose their rings at, uh, at that distant future, say 30 million years, but uh, Mars will uh, will join that club and it would be a, be a beautiful sight. And those rings, they say, could be as dense uh, as Saturn. So they could be, you know, these beautiful rings, not those wispy, near invisible ones around the other gas giants. All right, Jay, we're two weeks behind on Who's That Noisy? Oh. Oh, no, I don't even remember. It seems like a I'm long time ago I played hey. This Noisy. So wow. I had, uh, <laughs> that can't be natural. It's got to be. I took my headphones thing. off. Oh, really? really? Sorry about that. <laughs> it was well, not that it was too loud. It was just um, no. It's just uh, it's just like, painful. Like having a like having a mosquito in your ear. But did you yeah, really find a that painful, painful sound? So I found that incredible. Because painful. there was so much time between um, the the show that I played that at, Steve and I were talking about the noisy, and I told him what it was. 
Uh-huh. And Steve had an awesome response. Steve's like, oh, I should have been able to guess that if I only knew a tiny bit more information. So guess what it is, guys? Hmm. It's well, what's a, a tiny bit of information? The, well, uh, what's neurons communicating. What threw me off was the hmm. the medium of the sound, right? It was human it was, voices, yeah, right? Yeah, human voices. So that I was trying to recognize that. But if you ignore the medium and just focus on the pattern – the pattern mm-hmm. to me is highly recognizable. In fact, I spent a year listening to that, to that noise, and Th- you still couldn't, you couldn't guess it. Stand for two, but, seconds you know, in a different there. medium. Yeah. Just that's why it was tr- transposed to something different. Stanford professors Chris Chaff and Joseph Parvizi have transformed brain brain activity from seizures into music. Seizures. Seizure. And so, yeah, of course it's a seizure. It follows the exact sort of evolution of a seizure. It starts off a little slow and then it builds up. And that that sort of crazy pattern is like right at the heat of a seizure. And then it trails off at the end. I mean, seizures have a beginning, a middle, and an end. All all seizures? Typically, yeah. That's a typical seizure. It follows that kind of beginning, middle, and end. Regardless of the part of the brain it happens in? Yeah. Yeah. We look for that architecture in identifying a seizure. Whoa. do they last about the same length of time? That was a little compressed. Uh, seizures are typically, you know, one to three minutes. It would be a typical seizure. Ooh. Some could be briefer. There are different kinds of seizures, but that, yeah, that would be a typical seizure. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is that like a grand mal seizure but compressed? Or is it the same if it's a, a petit mal seizure? Yeah, like a, a petit mal is just in a focal area of the brain. Uh, but then they're like absence seizures, which last about 20 seconds. You know, they're different. There, there are some seizures that have different patterns. What we were listening to was probably a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. We, like somebody who would have convulsions. Yeah, and, grandma yeah, in, the okay. old, in the old parlance. But mm. Did you guys gotcha. know that some people have seizures in the pleasure centers of their brain? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Could you imagine? So weird. I, wow. <laughs> I think I had one of those once when I was eating a, a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> ham sandwich with bacon. So guys, I got a lot of funny of funny things people wrote in, guessing what that is, but deliberately being funny. One person wrote the latest Yoko Ono single. <laughs> ah! Oh no. <laughs> That's No, awesome. it's much, much better than Yoko. Nobody nailed it. Steve was actually the closest to showing any sign of life there. Hey. Good job, Steve. You won. But I, I found that fascinating. I loved the fact that they picked human sounding voices to represent the notes. I just thought it was very apropos. What do you have for this week? Now, guys, initially, you're going to feel like, hey, I recognize that. I know that. But just listen. Interesting. Kind of creepy, too. Did it sound familiar to any of you? It sounded like Forbidden Planet. Yep, I caught that, I <laughs> right? caught that as well. I know. It does sound like Forbidden Planet. Hmm, clue number one. I have a feeling many people are going to write in with the answer to this, but I lo- absolutely love this. If you think you know it, write to me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. If you have any cool suggestions or any funny things that hit you when you heard that, WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Well, guys, we're going to do one question this week. This one comes from Stephen Salzberg, uh, and he writes, 
I'm a genome scientist, and one of my areas of interest is horizontal gene transfer, which was the subject of last week's science or fiction when you discussed the new PNAS paper on the tardigrade genome. That paper made the incredible claim that 70% of the animal's genome had been laterally transferred, mostly from bacteria. I was very skeptical, having published papers before debunking such claims, so I read the paper right away. I'm working with a few colleagues to see if we can confirm or debunk their claims. But meanwhile, another group was nearly done sequencing another tardigrade genome, and they just published a preprint today uh, in which they repudiate the claim of the PNAS paper. Their abstract says, we compare our assembly to a recently published one for the same species and do not find support for massive horizontal gene transfer. So yeah, this has been, Hmm. this is interesting. Um, This is again, this is science at its best. One group publishes a paper, they make a claim. Another group looks at the same data or looks at it, their own set of data, asking the same question. They come up with a different result and then they're going to let the war begin, right? They're going to have to hammer it out. Now, the group that published this more recent paper showing that there isn't this evidence for massive horizontal gene transfer, they're claiming that the other group did it wrong, that essentially they were including a lot of contaminants in their sample. And, mm-hmm. and part of the reason they suspect that is because uh, the, um, the number, the amount of DNA that they were looking at was too much, 200 megabases. And that um, the, it, they were looking at the genome in little pieces, and often they didn't have the connections. They don't all connect up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's easy for there to be foreign pieces in there because it's not one contiguous genome. They, they don't have the, one end doesn't hook up to the next end. So there are there are good you know solid reasons to be skeptical of the claims made in that paper. But it'll take more analysis to resolve the differences now between these two groups. But, you know, having read the criticisms, it seems to me I wouldn't be surprised if that 17 percent figure turns out not to be true in the end. But we'll see. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. That was fast, though. I mean, that's the thing. The the most interesting thing is how quickly (laughs) this happened. You know, I think this is partly due to. The power of the internet, right? You could just oh, here's a here's our data. You publish it online. The turnaround time is so short. You know, pre-internet, this would take months to play out in the you know pages of print journals. You know. Oh yeah, because they said they put it in the biology archive, right? Yeah, yeah. Which was didn't that start as a physics thing? The archive. Yeah, the archive. And yeah. it's such a cool thing that you can go there and read like what's happening right now. Yeah, it's awesome. It's time for. Science or fiction? Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is Christmas. Of course. (laughs) It's coming in old. What would Christmas coming in? Oh, uh, Jay, we did uh, Thanksgiving. Was it last year or the year before? How did I do? You did very well. Thank oh, you. are you kidding? Well, now we're going to challenge your knowledge of the Christmas season. Okay. Okay? Oh, boy. All right. Just three <laughs> items. Item number one. Item number one. In Iceland, they have 13 Yule lads instead of one Santa Claus, whose mother, Grilla, kidnaps naughty children and cooks them in a cauldron. Item number two. 
The modern look of Santa Claus was essentially invented by Coca-Cola in the 1930s. Prior to that, Saint Nick was most often portrayed as tall and thin. And I number three, due to a wildly successful marketing campaign in 1974, KFC is the most popular meal for Christmas dinner in Japan. Jay, you've been absent for a couple of weeks, so you get to go first this week. In Iceland, they have 13 Yule lads. That's Weird. I don't even know what a Yule is, Steve. What's a Yule? It's like a. It's like the spirit of Christmas is the is Yule, right? Am I making that up? All right. So there's 13 Yule lads, <laughs> which is so weird. Uh, instead of what Santa Claus, <laughs> Yule is just is simply an archaic term for Christmas. All right. Okay. So oh, Santa, okay. there's yes. Christmas lads, and they have an evil mother, Gryla. <laughs> and, and she kidnaps naughty children and cooks oh, them. Yes. So if you're naughty, now the term naughty to me doesn't mean like you're evil. Naughty just means you didn't really listen to your mom a few times. You you threw flour on the floor and then she kills them. I don't like this. And it takes her 13 <laughs> sicko sons to like help her capture these kids. This is a really demented family we have here. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Um, the second one about Sa- the modern look of Santa Claus was invented by Coca-Cola. Odd. Definitely seems like the fiction, but my spidey sense is tickling, tingling, and I'm thinking that this one might actually be true. Um, I don't know why. I definitely can picture the Santa Claus that, that Coca-Cola created in my head, like of all the years I've seen it. Um, moving on to the last one, uh, this widely successful marketing campaign in 1974, Kentucky Fried Chicken is the most popular meal for Christmas dinner in Japan. How, can, that can't be true. First of all, do they even celebrate Christmas in Japan? For real. Like, do they do they fully do it like in other parts of the world? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. It's, it, the holiday is so mm. pervasive. But KFC? I mean, really? Ugh. So I'm just going to say that I think, without a doubt, the second one is is science. The one about Santa Claus <laughs> in Coca-Cola. Santa Claus is science. <laughs> Without um, a doubt. <laughs> never, thought, never thought you'd be able to say that in the same sense. I've, I've learned long ago that I should always think and, and believe every weird thing I hear about Japan. So I'm going to think that one is science <laughs> as well. So therefore, there were not 13 Yule lads. There were 14. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Bob. The Santa Claus and Coca-Cola. I mean, I've heard that before. Um, I don't know if that's just, um, that's not true. I've never heard anything about Santa being, or St. Nick being tall and thin. Uh, let's see. The marketing campaign, uh, oh, geez. I, I have no idea what to make of that. That could easily d- just go one way or the other. I agreed with, with, with what Jay said about it. The, uh, the Yule Lads is, is, is rubbing me the wrong way. First off, there's 13 of them, which is kind of a suspicious number. And so what? So these, if, if you're saying that the 13 lads instead of one Santa Claus, but then, uh, uh, their mom was a gorilla or gryla, she would have to accompany them to actually collect these naughty kids. So there's you got 14 of these people coming around and cooking <laughs> them. I, I just don't see, I could see Santa Claus being having a, a darker bent in the past, especially with Krampus, uh, which is which is so such a cool cool idea. Idea, but yeah. but I don't think in modern day they're going to be they're going to be going for something that dark, um, even in Iceland. So I'm gonna, I'm going to have to say that that one's fiction as well. Okay, Kara. Everybody's saying that the Iceland one is fiction, but I I know for a fact that Dutch Christmas is super weird, and they have like a blackface elf, and I think that there are other things in this kind of cold part of Europe that, I don't know, something about the Iceland one actually makes me think it's true. 
I'm kind of leaning towards saying that the Yule Lads and Gryla and the crazy the crazy huh. mother who eats her own children. Is that right? No, she eats other people's children. <laughs> um, could be true. She eats your children. Oh, she eats my children. If they're naughty. I don't have children, so I'm cool with that. Um, let's see. Wildly successful marketing campaign in 1974. KFC is the most popular meal for I'm going to go with Jay on that and say that like anything that seems weird about Japan might be true. I hate to say that, but I think it might be true. I'm the one that's sticking to me is the is the Coca-Cola Santa Claus one because I feel like it's one of those urban myths. You know what I mean? It's something that like everybody would assume is true, but probably isn't. So I'm going to say that Coca-Cola had nothing to do with Santa Claus's look. That's that that came out some other way. And Evan. My recollection of the modern look of Santa Claus was not the Coca-Cola ad, I think. Didn't Santa appear on a currency at some point? What? <laughs> I, 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 I seem to remember watching a show about, about notes and currency. And <laughs> Santa Claus, and at one point, I think in the 1800s, maybe the late 1800s, was depicted on an, on a note. And if I'm not mistaken, because I'm going to guess that this one's the fiction, my recollection is that Santa was depicted on a $3 bill from the, from the 1800s, not the 1900s, which predates, obviously, the Coca-Cola thing. Like you said, Kara, I think uh, that that one's a misunderstood, quote-unquote, fact. Uh, so I, I think that one's the fiction. Your DVR must be so boring. You're watching a show about notes and currency. <laughs> Don't you want to know how currency is made and the material it's made out of, where it's made? Oh, I love it's a fascinating process. Yeah, oh, I do. It is. You watch how it's made? It's not, it's not paper. It's not paper, by the way. That, that show is crack. It's addictive. It's, cr- it's crack. It's it's one? And so it's wait, the silliest oh. thing. It's like they're making a... Uh, like skis, you know, for <laughs> just like who cares? But <laughs> how it's made, the whole right. process is, is fascinating. Yeah, the yarn is then thread into several stitches and combined with <laughs> no. the material from the press. <laughs> well, it's because you know I feel like there's this deep, dark, mysterious aspect to our civilization that I know nothing about, and now I'm getting a peek behind the curtain. Also, it's like every episode is a Rube Goldberg machine. It's like weird, yeah. cool factory stuff. Yeah, yeah, those, I love those factory machines. Lines. Yeah, those those machines amaze me because they are up tw- like twenty four seven, probably for weeks on end. And I want to see a show where they show you how they make those damn machines because th- you could imagine <laughs> right. the, to- the tolerances must be so tight. And how how do they make them? And how long does it take to test it to make it work flawlessly? For, right. for days on end. I want to oh, see. Oh gosh, that. that would be and so guys, meta. How it's yeah. made, right? <laughs> Oh, so made man, machines. Yeah, totally. <laughs> all right. Well, well, I'm sure our listeners are are waiting to hear the results. So, Baited breath, you man. all agree with the third one. So we'll start there. Due to a wildly successful marketing campaign in 1974, KFC is the most popular meal for Christmas dinner in Japan. We all agreed on that. <laughs> you all think that one is the science? Oh my gosh! And that one is. Science. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that I got that right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, apparently, there's turkey is is inaccessible in Japan. Uh, huh. So KFC came up with the idea that well, fried chicken is like the next best thing. So Christmas sure. is a secular holiday in Japan, mm-hmm. and they, you know they celebrate it as sort of like an imported Western holiday like halloween is happening across many countries yes right right and they, then kfc managed to insert themselves you know into the tradition and now 
Fried chicken is the traditional Christmas dinner. Good move, KFC. The, wow. yeah, that guy brilliant. got some got a major bonus. <laughs> <laughs> major bonus. Yeah. So the the term is they came up with their their marketing slogan is I'm gonna I'm gonna totally butcher the the Japanese, but it's Kurisumasu Niwa Kentucky. <laughs> so Kentucky for Christmas, Kentucky for Christmas. So it translates into that was the campaign. Uh, it is so successful that people will order their KFC chicken for Christmas months in advance. <laughs> months? That people what will spend hell? hours online to pick up their chicken. And that the the franchise, huh. like if the, the store owners, it's all hands on deck. They have to pull the managers out from the back of the store to help move the line along on the day before Christmas because people, everyone's picking up their chicken. What? Awesome. That yeah. is so Awesome. <laughs> oh, a fast food chain owns a holiday. That's inc- that's yeah, something. Yeah. So that was surprising, but cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, guess we'll go back to number one. Uh-oh. In Iceland, they have 13 <laughs> Yule lads instead of one Santa Claus, whose mother, Grilla, kidnaps naughty children and cooks them in a cauldron. Bob and Jay thinks this one is the fiction. Evan and Kara, you buy this. You think this one's real. Uh-huh. And this one is come on science you bastard you did it you bastard amazing i know coca-cola created santa what the hell are you pulling that from does she eat them is she a cannibal grilla grilla well i I guess so they're trolls they're very troll-like oh i see creatures they're subhuman they're the christmas trolls the icelandic yule trolls or yule lads so they, they celebrate the christmas christmas from december 23rd to january 6th and every night Jeez. you get visited by a different Yule lad, and they all have their own personality. Some are nicer than others. Some are pranksters. They all have oh. the, some characteristic that they care about. So they they do something different every night. But typically they do live, leave like little bits of candy or toys or gifts or whatever on each night. What you get each day depends on how whether you were good or bad the previous day. You know, so it's like a day-to-day uh, reward and punishment system. And the legend is that the mother gorilla will capture especially naughty children to cook them in her cauldron. But according to the rules, if you repent, she has to let you go. This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Wow. I just Googled it, and there's this amazing, like, chart of yes. all of the different Yule lads. Yes. One of them, one of them steals wooden spoons to lick, and yeah. he's extremely thin to, due to malnutrition. Right. There's the door well, slammer who likes to slam doors during the night. The bowl yeah. licker. The meat <laughs> the hook. Licker. The, what, the doorway the sniffer. The candle stealer. <laughs> the what? doorway <laughs> sniffer? Why would you have to sniff That's, a doorway? The window the peeper. Oh, Jay, you're going to love this one. The sausage swiper. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask. Don't ask how. Don't ask how he does it. The skyer gobbler. The spoon licker, the pot licker, stubby. (laughs) Stubby. It sounds like... (laughs) And the sheep coat clod, who likes uh, to harass sheep. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Well, it is Iceland. They really don't have a lot going on there because that that's not You know, like where's the where's the uh, one that cuts people's heads off? You know? That's crazy. Where's the one that, that sets things on fire? You know, like you know, like the, the flamey. The doorway sniffer. The doorway sniffer. Guys, we have to come up with a a holiday icon. What what will they do? Let's the, have one 
let's have one steal sausages. Okay, okay, that's obviously. <laughs> obviously. One, let's have this one, one lick, breaks lick spoon poles. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I got an idea. Let's have a guy sniff a doorway. There's nothing in a doorway. There's nothing in a doorway. What is he sniffing? <laughs> have you? Yeah, I, thought, I was fascinated by that. I thought that was interesting. I don't mind losing this week because that's awesome. (laughs) I'm still pissed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All of this means that the modern look of Santa Claus was essentially invented by Coca-Cola in the 1930s. Prior to that, Saint Nick was most often portrayed as tall and thin. That one is the fiction because Kara is exactly right. That is an urban legend. Yes. You can read all about it on Snopes. Oh, I love Snopes. It is completely false. The image of Santa Claus has just continuously evolved over centuries in each culture. And the Western look of Santa Claus pre-existed Coca-Cola's campaign, you know, where they, where they used him, so that they did not invent the modern look. The, all of the elements of that look were there beforehand. So, But there, there were previous incarnations of Santa Claus where he was tall and thin. Sometimes he didn't have a beard. There's lots of different inspirations for him. The more I read into it, the more, you know, multifarious it was. It's like, yeah, there was St. Nicholas. Then there was this guy from Turkey. and But there were other inspirations as well. So it's... Uh, Chris Kringle. It's all That's complicated. It's all really complicated. Again, myth tends to simplify all that complexity down to Coca-Cola invented, you know, the the the, the classic modern Santa Claus. But they did not. Did they invent any aspect of him? I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, there was a particular artist's conception of Santa Claus, but again, it was not a significant departure from previous Santas. Like every time a writer or an artist creates their version of Santa Claus, they iterate it a little bit. You know what I mean? That's why it's more of an evolutionary process. (laughs) Did you see Evan just shouted us the money? Yep. (laughs) I was right. <laughs> I accept all your collective apologies. What's the money, Steve? It's a $20 bill. It's a $20 a bill with Santa Claus on it? This is, yep. <laughs> the whole from, thing's fake. It's from Massachusetts. Kid's dead. It's not worth anything. <laughs> it's not worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Jay, I guess you right. you don't have the same Christmas chops as you do Thanksgiving chops, apparently. Yeah, because, look, I can't be good at everything. Yeah, it's true. And I was just Only scratching the surface. There were so many, so many places to go with this one. I may do this every no, year. For- no promises, though. Can you do Hanukkah next year? <laughs> yeah, I could. But I, the, my problem is I'd have no idea if I was laying you softballs or not. You know what I mean? Oh, there's consultants you can go yeah. to for that one. So. Apparently, during Hanukkah, they light one candle each night. <laughs> for <laughs> what? fiction Insanity. Insanity. <laughs> who the hell would do that hey, St- hey Steve very yeah. important stuff yes. okay yeah. Nexus 2016 Nexus I know right I May 12th to, to the 15th we are going to do the skeptical extravaganza uh, which Ooh. we ran last year but we ran in this Australia time Museum. With we'll Kara Kara first time yeah Kara I've, I've never right. been to Nexus I'm so excited this is in New York City that's May 12th to the 15th. So you can go to nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G for more information. Um, and guess what, Steve? I hear we've booked our first keynote speaker. That is correct. Who is it? Richard oh. Wiseman, our old friend. Awesome. Oh, awesome. 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 Yeah, great. Great Loving Richard. He's such an awesome entertaining. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also going to do a show. He's gonna do, He has his own like 30-minute stage show that he does. That he's going to must see. Yeah, that yeah that'll do. be on Saturday night. The skeptical extravaganza will be on Friday night. George Robb will be doing a, a special a special musical 
orchestra. For, well, actually, it's a four-piece string quartet oh, of his wow. of As his As opposed top to songs. a five-piece string quartet. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, somewhere that might Hi-oh. happen. But it, I heard a sample recording, um, just so he, you know, this was his demo that he made of it, just to pass around to to inside people, and it's fantastic. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Like it's probably going to be my favorite thing. So go to nexus.org, N-E-C-S-S dot O-R-G. We're also going to have a special limited, special SGU late night live recording. Uh, we'll probably sell only 30 tickets to that. So if you want to get you know close, talk to but us. But registration's not open yet, just to be clear. Not open yet. But yeah. very yeah, soon. Well, this, this it will is... be soon. This is just to keep yeah, you interested. Weeks. And then as soon as the registration opens, we'll let you know. All right, Evan, give us a quote this week. Slippery slope arguments are intuitively tempting but they need strong gravity and weak friction. Yes, very pithy. Written by Sean Welsh. Uh, Sean Welsh is a doctoral candidate in robot ethics at the University of Canterbury, and he writes for I Fucking Love Science, or IFLS. So that's great. And that was submitted to us by listener Daniel Hagee from Springfield, Oregon. So thank you for sending that in, Dan. Yeah, it's a good way to think about the slippery slope fallacy. And like all fallacy, the those informal logical fallacies, they're not absolute. They're context dependent. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't mean that there's never a progression you know, from benign to malignant versions of things. It's just that they won't necessarily progress. The fallacy is in thinking that there's nothing keeping it from progressing from a – a reasonable or modest version of whatever to the extreme absurd, absurd version. It's like, oh, if you you know let the government you know mandate seatbelts, then pretty soon they'll be controlling every aspect of your life. You right. know, or for it's a common slippery slope type of ar- type argument. All right, well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Sure, thank you. Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.